the mortification of sin in the believer. Last week I got started, uh, quite frankly, like, like most folks, I overprepared. So there was a couple of things that I didn't get to last week as I looked at my watch and time was ticking away. And I want to revisit just for a moment this morning uh, before we go on. Uh, just by way of review, you remember our focal passage uh, for this mortification process, putting sin to death, we take back from Romans chapter 8, verse 13, Romans eight thirteen that says this, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. By the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live, and just briefly, by the Spirit, this is not something that we can do in and of ourselves. The Word of God, as you know from Paul's teaching in Romans, uh, have, if you don't have the Spirit of God living within you, which every born-again believer has, the Word does not make sense to you, does it? There's no power there. There's no dunamis, as it says. It's not there. So simply in this Scripture, it emphasizes that this occurs by the Spirit of God. It's not a matter of a man or a woman turning over a new leaf or pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps or whatever. No, it's a dependency upon the power of God in your life based solely upon the truth of God's Word. You cannot separate those two. So we looked at that. I hope I made it that clear last week. Uh, But I wanted to look at another verse here. Uh, from the Word of God that speaks about how we are to deal with sin. I mentioned it briefly, uh, and that was Colossians 3, 5, as we got started last week, where he uses this uh, same phraseology. He says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. And then he lists this compilation of sinful activities here. He mentions fornication, uncleanliness, Passion, evil desire, covetousness, which Paul says is idolatry. And I wanted to go back, and I did not last week, and kind of look at those just briefly. Uh, There's a lot we could say. But, of course, when he's talking about this word fornication, you know, it's from that Greek word pornea. It's often translated immorality. You can find that in most of your study Bibles. And it relates not to any specific sexual sin, but to all forms of of sexual sin, all forms. He mentions uncleanliness, which is translated impurity. But this is interesting because, like so many other, at least, what, three other of the uh, items he mentions here, particular types of sin, it involves not only actions, not doing things. And here's where the rubber really meets the road. It involves thinking things. It involves our attitude, what we allow our minds to set on or as he says it's evil thoughts evil intentions and we looked last week just briefly and saw why this is so important christ himself teaches us about this aspect of sinful activity does he not and he talks about things like adultery and he talks about things like murder that can occur in the heart before they're ever done can you imagine having an attitude towards someone because you've been Uh, rejected or spurned or publicly embarrassed or I don't know, whatever, maybe even physically hurt, but you're developing a hate, a hateful attitude towards someone. And if you look at this closely, oftentimes it's, it's just developing a mindset that just discounts someone. It's a mindset towards someone. It's like that person really doesn't exist. They are so... Uh, base or debased in your mind that they really don't even exist. They don't deserve the time of day. God writes down hate in the heart. God writes down murder in the heart. We've put that person to death. We've mortified that person in our mind. What causes a person to think like that? Do we think we can justify that kind of behavior just because we've been hurt and hurt grossly in our life? Do we think that justifies it? I can help you with a mirror there. In other words, holding up a mirror that will allow you to examine those types of attitudes. Just picture your Savior on a cross bearing your sin. Just picture that. And remember, secondly, where you were when grace 
came to your life. And I'm talking about saving grace. When you realize that what you were, and you understand nobody gets to that point without repentance. Nobody gets to that point unless they do exactly what the prodigal son did, and that's come to the end of himself, as it says. That's what helps us understand, as we looked last week, what was it from uh, Luke chapter 7, the little parable that Jesus gave Simon, the Pharisee, a little parable about who's going to love him the most. And he said, well, the one who's been forgiven the most. How important is it? And we'll revisit this. How important is it for us to understand what we've been redeemed from? The terribleness, the awfulness, the costliness of our own personal sin. Not sin in general. We want to divert sometimes personal responsibility. Lump us in with the world that sins. Well, you can do that, but it's not about that. It's about us and our relationship toward God. So I developed that a little bit and we'll move on. Passion, which is literally the physical side of sexual lust. Enough said about that. But contrast that with the second part, and these are similar where he says evil desire, and that's literally the mental side. So we're back once again about the place where sin initially takes its root in our life, and that's in our mind. Guard your mind, the Bible says. Guard your heart. Have the mind of Christ. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. I challenge you, if you want a nice Sunday afternoon study, since we don't have church tonight, just take you an electronic Bible or get online, go to Bible study tools, and just put in mind in whatever translation you want. And look at how we're encouraged to give attention to what we think and how our mind can be transformed through the study of God's Word. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. We can be changed in that regard. Hallelujah. Because that's where it all begins for us. Covetousness. All the way back to the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet. He says... It's just another form of greed. Got to have it. Got to have it right now. More and more and more and more. Can't get enough. You know the old adage, ask a person who has a lot, how much more do they want? And what do they always say? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Because that's what they're focused upon. How much more things can I get? Things of the world. And then lastly, he says, this is really all just a lot of idolatry, seeking anything outside of God's desire for us. And the key word here is desire. God has a desire for us. He has commands for us. So are our, 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 our desires, that which we want, that which is priority in our life, is it being conformed? Is it being changed? We looked last week at this process of examination that Paul talks about in Corinthians where we literally go back. I think I used the analogy sitting on a rock and getting away from the world. Coming away and looking at what's important to me right now. My life being lived. Accountability in the future. Accountability right now. Opportunities in this life as a believer. What's important to me? What am I focusing on right now? We can say it a hundred ways, but we're to focus upon the things of God. You know, you and I live in a world today that tells us that what we're supposed to be about is getting ahead. What we're supposed to be about is perhaps, in most cases, getting our pound of flesh. What we're supposed to be about is getting all that we can in this competitive world, being a man or whatever. And Christ says, you know, you're to be thankful, you're to be diligent, you're to be responsible, you're to do, what does it say in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 and 23, talks about doing what you do as unto the Lord, doing what you do uh, uh, for God and not unto men. In other words, having a whole different mindset about what motivates us. That's the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. That's what the Word of God does in a person's life. We are to be distinguishably different when contrasted with the world. We are to radiate 
the person of Christ. What did he say? Let your light so shine before men that they will what? See your good works. We were created, it says, unto good works. They'll see your good works and pat you on the back, right? Is that what it says? Yeah. No, it says to glorify God that will turn people toward Him. I'd love to be able to share with you in, in detail something that happened to me at work this week. I just love these things where you see God's hand in a mighty way. You know He's there. He's using the circumstances of your life to change the lives of others. Quite frankly, there was a situation that came up that involved me. And in short, it was an opportunity for me to show grace to a person who does not understand grace, who does not see their own need for grace. That's not a real work in their life right now. And I'll say with some cost to me, but that's okay because it was evident that God was there working the circumstances of my life, coming behind our obedience, you know, and plugging us into that which He's already prepared to accomplish. Blows my mind. And then it blows my mind further that I and we could in any way be a part of that. That makes life worth living. It lets us know God's can and will use us. So I'll go back just briefly to visit those two verses because I wanted to say that about them. And then, um, again last week, um, I mentioned a verse from Galatians 5.24. And I want to go back and look at this verse along with three other verses as we were talking about uh, crucifixion. And we probably just went right over that because I didn't I didn't go back and ponder the specific use of this word for the sake of time. Because what you find with Galatians 2.20, Galatians 5.24, Galatians 6.14, and then in Romans 6.6, 6, you find four times that the word crucified is used, and it's not referring to the specific crucifixion of Christ. Four times you find that. Your good study Bible will probably or maybe point that out. But what we want to do and why that's important, I mean, look at this. Try to, try to put your mind back in the time with the Apostle Paul. Understanding what the word crucified meant. Understanding, if you can, just for a moment, what went over those people when this was read and they saw that word crucified, what popped up in their mind? Okay? Nowadays, we're desensitized. Somebody talks about lethal injection or the electric chair or hanging somebody, you know, manners of capital punishment in our day and time. I think in my lifetime, we've actually shot somebody. Gary Gilmore. Anyway, uh, we don't, we're desensitized to that. But I guarantee you, if you're on your way to town or whatever, or you're traveling and you've got your family with you, and along the way you see bodies hanging on crosses, some fresh, some people still alive, you know, uh, some obviously weathered out, torn and eaten and, and literally, you know, putrefied. How horrible that is to say nothing of their knowledge of the agony and the pain that went on with that. Why is that important here? Because not once, but four times, Paul uses that terminology talking about what has happened in his life, what has happened from the perspective, perspective of God providing justification for us, this crucifixion. And he uses this word where it's not, as again I say, not specifically talking about Christ's crucifixion. Because, I'll go ahead and tell you, he talks about, where I marked it, he talks about crucifying the flesh. On one point, he says, I have been crucified. He says, the world has been crucified to me. And then he says, lastly, in Rome, our old man was crucified. He uses these four things. Why, Paul, go back and use such vivid, vivid imagery in your life? What are you trying to say? Well, the short answer is this. That this matter of sin in our life after salvation, going back and looking at the cost 
the cost, the price that was paid for justification, for our salvation, to say nothing of our sanctification and ultimately our glorification, a tremendous price that was paid. And Paul keeps that in mind. He's well aware, though he wasn't a witness there, he wasn't a witness to that. He's only been exposed to what God through the revelation has taught him about crucifixion, about what happened, the crucified life in this case, as he talks about this. Listen, Galatians 5, I'll start with 524, no need to do them in order. Uh, he says, and those who are, cru- who are Christ have crucified the flesh. They've put the flesh to death with its passions and desires. Now, it begs the question, now wait a minute, Paul, if, if you're saying this has happened, this has already happened, where are we with this? Why is this even necessary? But although the flesh has been crucified, he says the battle and war still continue. Now you could take, you could go to Romans chapter 6, read verses 1 through 11, or maybe all the way up through verse 14, and he'll go into this in detail, talking about this death, this crucifixion, because one of our focal passages here is Romans 6, 6, which we'll get to in a minute. One day, one day at glorification, past justification, past our progressive sanctification in this life, God has provided glory for us. He's provided relief. He's provided an eternal rest. God, why didn't you just do that at the moment of salvation in a practical sense? In other words, why do we still have to contend with the flesh, the unredeemed flesh that is still there? Why is that? I don't know. That's going to be one of my first questions. One of my first questions. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah, perhaps. Maybe I'll get around to it a couple thousand years. I'll be behind you, I'm sure. Hurry up, John. I got things on my mind. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But there's no sin. There's no temptation in heaven. And we're mindful of that because as we crucify this flesh, as we maintain that mindset, he says it has been crucified through the work of Christ. That's so important. And it helps us focus upon our strength. Galatians 2.20, we're most all familiar with that, where he says, but maybe he didn't even realize he's, that he's not talking about Christ per se or Christ's crucifixion. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. I, Paul, have been crucified with Christ. And he says, therefore, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Paul sees this as a reality. He identifies the indwelling Holy Spirit in him as the person of Christ. And he's wholly mindful of that. Can you imagine going through the things that Paul went through? You know, there's a passage there where he talks about his shipwrecks. He talks about his beatings. He talks about being in fear, being robbed, and all these different things, and false brethren, and all these kinds of things. Who wants to go through that without a firm, without a firm visual, the experience of knowing that Christ is my life and that same resurrection power is there for me? He will not leave me. He will provide for me. He says, Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh, he says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. To be wrapped up in the arms of Christ and the work of Christ. That's a good place to go, friends, when we experience rejection. It's a good place to go when we experience those things in our life, in our families, in our workplaces that are hurtful, maybe even harmful. Uh, The danger, again, I say, is when we begin thinking like we have excuse, we have reason, we have purpose for acting in a selfish way ungodly way. Now, we'll send no message of grace to the world if we choose to act in such a fashion. What comes over us at a time of immense emotional trauma and pain like I've just described that allows us, that equips us, strengthens us to move forward in a manner that would typify and reflect the life of our Savior. What, what is it? And Paul would say it's, it's this knowledge that he continually keeps 
that these things have been crucified in his life. He can say later, and he does in Romans 6, just just consider yourself to be dead to this. It shall not have dominion over you. Now, am I up here talking about perfection this morning? I'm not. Let me just go back and say that. No. I'm talking about an attitude. I'm talking about a level of belief that, that pushes us to a point where these kinds of failures in our life are few and far between. These kinds of failures in our life, because of our continual sanctification, our continual moving toward Christ in belief. And I tell you how it happens. You know how it happens. For instance, you pray for patience, what's going to happen? God, I'm not patient. I just don't have patience. What's going to happen? Do you know from experience what will happen if you pray for patience? God will put you in a situation where you need patience, where faith can be demonstrated. He just said, by faith is how I do this. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. All this is very real to us. And this power is there. This isn't magic. This is God doing what He said He would do in and through our life. Crucified life. So when He says crucified here, this is a... It's termed a spiritual participation. I like what the MacArthur Study Bible says. It is a spiritual participation. Now, it's a, it's a mindset. It's a belief. It's a commitment that results in action in our life. That's what he's talking about. So this is the type of attitude that we take. I couldn't help but remember in 1 Corinthians, what is it, 6.20 and in 7.23, For Paul tells us plainly that we are bought at a price. We're bought with a price and our life is not our own. Paul understood that. That's why why later he could say for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. He saw it clearly. And I want to see it that clearly. It changes your priorities in life. It escalates the level of spiritual strength that you have to overcome in this life. And if this is not real, if this is not a real thing, if the Word of God does not empower us to such a way, then why are we here today? It does work. And He will be faithful to His Word. Galatians uh, 6, 14. Paul would say, and I don't need to move on. He says, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world, he says, has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Now he's saying, well, what did he say? He says, the the flesh has been crucified. He says, I have been crucified. And here in Galatians 6.14, the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. The world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. He's talking about an attitude. And this has everything to do with that sanctification, that progressive sanctification in our life. To know and to accept that we are not of this world, even though we're here physically, we know we're headed somewhere else. This world is not our home, as Peter says. We're moving on. But more than that, the intensity here is that the world and the things of the world do not dominate my mind. They do not write out, if you will, uh, and they do not dominate my list of priorities, the things that are important for me. I know what I'm supposed to do to be responsible in this life. I'm not talking about those practical things. The Bible speaks about those. It talks about people who won't work. You know, it talks about people who are stingy and won't give. Okay? It talks about all those kinds of things. We're talking about the motivation. We're talking about why we do what we do. We're talking about a God who looks upon the heart, as it said. He does a much better job of that, by the way, than we do. God does. So here we see that. The language here speaks of spiritual deadness to the world. Spiritual deadness to the evil system of the world. How are you? I am so disappointed you know with you can't you can't flip on the tv anymore i mean if you want to watch 
public TV. <laughs> or if you want to watch here, you know, I, yesterday I had family over. I'm kind of in the, you know, America, 4th of July kind of thing. I flipped on the TV after dinner to see if there was some kind of program. I thought there would be something. And you know what your choices were? Independence Day. Okay, I'm talking about the aliens. That was one choice. There was a silly musical about the signing of the Declaration of Independence it was on, I thought would be pretty good. And then, they, then ben, when Ben Franklin broke into a chorus, I just changed it. Uh, kind of, you know. Uh, and then I saw this thing on the History Channel. Oh, and I turned it, and I saw, you know, and it was a, it was a period piece about the, the uh, uh, revolution and so forth and all that kind of thing. And I thought, okay. And then I, found, I wasn't watching it 10 minutes. I'm there with my daughter-in-law, her mother, and there's this graphic sexual scene. I have to fumble for the TV thing to switch it. I, I went back to that moments later, somewhere on in there, and I finally just had to turn the thing off. It dominates our lives. It's everywhere. And I can't see myself... I can't believe I'm feeling this way about, you know, a t- but I remember people used to say, I just want to take my TV and throw it out in the backyard, and I want to tell you I'm there. I'm there. I've already gone through and, and blocked channels. You can do that. It says a lot about our country. It really does. But you see evidences, and you're not going to see anything else with the world. You're going to see the world's system and the world's way, and we don't have to look hard nowadays. No, not if you hold yourself out and you live as a follower of Christ. You are, as it says, a little Christ. You hold yourself out to that and you stick out like a sore thumb. So we need the Word of God. We need the power of God's Spirit. We need the fellowship of one another in this place. But he says that this language here does indeed speak of the world and the world's system. What else do we find along that line? Perhaps from 1 John chapter 2, verse 25 where we're admonished, he says, do not, brethren, do not love the world or the things in the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. I like John. He don't mince words. You know, we, we picture him so many times as the guy who leaned on Jesus' breast, you know, and the one who had a special relationship with Christ, and indeed he did. You know, we have evidence of that in the Word of God. But we also see him saying, hey, Lord, you want us to call down fire on these people and just blow them up right now? Remember, that's John. That's John. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Ooh, that's an attention getter, isn't it? Mike, why should I give so much attention about the bombardment of the world and the things of the world in my life? Why should I do that? Because if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. And it can be and will be manifested to those around you, particularly particularly to your Christian brothers and sisters. James 4.4, adulteresses do not know do you not know, rather, that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That is, it makes us an enemy of God. Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot have it both ways. And yet we have to live in this world. We have to, as Christ said, be in the world, but not be of the world. We're here and we're here for a purpose. We have power to live above the things of the world as provided by Christ in our life through the Word and through His Holy Spirit. Then lastly, I mentioned Romans 6.6 6, where He uses, and this is the fourth example, where crucified is used not in direct relationship <clears throat> to the cross of Christ. He says, knowing this, that our old man, here the old man was crucified with Him with Christ, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. The old man has been crucified. And I have a portion that I want to read to you here uh, from a MacArthur study note because it says it so much better than I could say it. He says here, MacArthur's note, 
Oh, no, no, let me find it. He says, although the old self is dead, sin retains a foothold in our temporal flesh or our unredeemed humanness, as he puts it forth here, with its corrupted desire. It's always there. It will still be there. And it references, and we'll get into this maybe, maybe next week, Romans 7, beginning in verse 14 there, where Paul talks about his battle. We may go back and visit that or look at that. The believer does not have two competing natures. Now, I was taught this coming up in church. I was taught that there were two natures, that the redeemed person had two full-blown natures. I can remember one preacher saying it like this, and I'll never forget it. He said, yeah, he said, you can, you can uh, explain these two natures best as this. He said, you got it. You may know where I'm going. You got a black dog and you got a white dog. You got a black bad dog and a good white dog, and the one that wins is the one you say sick them to. That was my teaching in that area. Now, I can find some truth in that, but the faultity in that, if that's a word, is that there are not two natures for the redeemed person. We have a new nature, yet we still struggle with the unredeemed flesh. But make no mistake about it, we are to be dominated, we are to be known by that new nature. Sin should be an exception in our life. And sin will be an exception in our life, even though we sin daily. It will be an exception in our life to those who are looking at our life. Praise God. We will never get to we'll never get close to perfection. We'll never get to where we want to go until God, through His grace, concludes our salvation through glorification. Never. But that's where He wants us going. That's where He wants us directed. With total dependence upon Him. He will complete what He has started in our life, it says. So it's important to understand that. It's not a 50-50 proposition for the believer. We have a new nature. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God, by the power of Christ, the person of Christ. He will not leave us. He's constantly there. And when we walk out of that, when we step out of that, either by the way we're thinking, the words that we're saying, the actions we're taking, or even our neglects, our omissions, when we do that, it should be the gross exception for us. How do we stay in that bubble? How do we stay in that sphere? How do we have the mind of Christ? How do we stay full? And by that I just mean dominated by the things of God and not the things of the world. God empowers us to do that. He talks about our ability to overcome, not from us, but because of what He has provided for us. The power of His Word, the knowledge of His Word. Take those things of the world out. Fill your life with the power of God's Word. It involves discipline. It involves some study. It involves commitment. Because you're human, it involves a little bit of trial and error. We think we can do things on our own, and we think because we know a little bit, we can move forward. And we don't because we leave some way. We leave our dependency upon God. But it all comes together. In the book, I showed you the book, he tells a story about, uh, and I remember this, a guy named Aaron Ralston. Aaron Ralston was that guy who went out in Utah and he he violated that that first commandment for all backpackers and hikers. You're supposed to tell somebody where you're going, you know, know, when you'll be back. And so he didn't do that. He was rock climbing. He fell and he got his arm wedged down in a, between two rocks. He survived the fall, but he couldn't get his arm out. Well, he stayed there all night, and after about three days, his food ran out. He still couldn't get his arm out. So he decided he's going to have to cut his arm off. True story. And uh, he had a pocket knife. And he finally starts the process, and it's descriptive. I saw a little piece on the TV about this, and he talks about cutting through the radial nerve, and he passed out and all this kind of thing. But it highlights the commitment that you have to have. Took him an hour with a pocket knife to saw his arm off from like right here down. He got his arm free. He got out. And by the grace of God, I think he walked for five or six hours and he ran up on a family who was hiking. And they got him out of there out in Utah. And 
Hedges uses that story to emphasize this thing about having the right kind of attitude about putting sin to death. And he's right out of the Bible, right? And we'll look at it in a minute. What did Jesus say about your hand or foot and your eye? You know, if it offends you, do what with it? Get rid of it. Cut it off is the example that he used. Trying to create this horrific mindset. It's akin to what Paul is saying about when he uses the word crucifixion to talk about these things. Him being crucified. The world being crucified. His old self being crucified. The flesh being crucified. This is serious business. Identify it. Cut it off. Get rid of it. Get it out of your life. And again, Jesus says something very similar in Mark 9, beginning with verse 42, where He talks about that. It's tough language, isn't it? We looked last week and I mentioned that tough language from Matthew 23 where Jesus is coming down on religious hypocrites, which, by the way, He came down harder on them than anybody. Much harder on religious hypocrites saying you're one thing and being something else from a religious perspective. There are dangers, dangers in sin. And I like what our Puritan fathers talked about. They had a phrase that they used. And I, I read the uh, well, latest um, autobiography on uh, Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Ian, uh, he just left me. Ian Murray. Ian Murray, yeah. Uh, and they talk about this phrase, they call it holy violence. Having a holy violence against sin. I mean, way back yonder, they understood what Paul was saying. They understood the words of Christ in dealing with this issue. They called it a holy violence. I can just see them having conferences on it or however they did it or whatever. But it emerges. You see it in, in John Owen's works. He talks about a holy violence because this was an attitude. This is what was taught. A holy violence against sin. And Hedges says that until we have that kind of attitude, of course he's a pastor, until we have that kind of attitude, until we see sin for what it is and we note the danger of it, we really won't make the kind of progress that we want to make in our life. And we talked last week at some length about calling it what it is and dealing with it. And you have things like that we want to tolerate you know, sins of avarice, you know, just excessive greed, which we see in our world today. Even anger, we want to justify our anger. Oh, the Bible says be angry, but don't sin. Well, what does that mean? What did you just do between your ears when you adopted that kind of attitude in your heart more specifically? Avarice, anger, anxiety. I, I, I never thought of anxiety as being sinful until I understood from God's Word that it represents a lack of faith. It's just, a, it's just showing me that I'm focusing on my own weaknesses, you know, the possibility of rejection, the possibility of refusal or whatever, being repulsed. I don't know why everybody is so put out with that. We want to get to the point where if we're accepted in Christ and we're accepted by Christ and we're right in the Word, first of all, we're dead sinner where He wants us to be regardless of the circumstances. Where else do you want to be in your life? I don't want to be anywhere else. I don't need to understand the ins and outs of everything. I just need to know and be confirmed that I'm right where I'm supposed to be according to God's desire for my life. That's a wonderful thing. And he mentioned in the book, he used this term, respectable sins. And by coincidence, I'm, a, I'm beginning preparation, uh, going to be teaching that in our community group starting in September. Uh, and I know at least one group has gone through that here. We're going to be doing that uh, in our group, me and uh, Dr. Ryan, Tim Ryan. So I'm looking forward to that. He mentions that phraseology here, respectable sins. But to get an idea how God uses these things to teach us, that there are things in our life that maybe we don't, we don't really put a handle on. We don't think they're a big deal. I, I told the guys in the ministry house about the guys, I'm going to use this same example because it fits. Um, about what a time when God opened up my eyes to an area of sinfulness that beforehand I had been oblivious to. And I want to share that with you. And, and I want you to be thinking about that as the Word of God, as your continued study begins to open these things up and you do this self-examination that we talked about last week. 
I was, uh, some of you know I'm retired from Cobb Police, and at one of my assignments there, I commanded the Internal Affairs Unit there for five years. And uh, I can't use names, won't use names or really much description, but I want to tell you about something. I handled a case on an individual one time. I'd only been in there a few weeks, and um, anyway, it was one of those things where it was obvious this person came to work for the county to sue the county. That's the only reason they were there. They were just waiting for the right opportunity. So uh, we'd already seen some things in this person's work history, which was leading us in that direction. We had a new complaint that we were investigating, that the new guy was investigating. And anyway, this was an ugly thing. This was, this was something. Every time I interviewed this person, I wanted to go take a shower. You know what I'm saying? After I got through, I just, it was just like, it was an evil thing. I don't know how else to describe it. And I dealt with this person. Long story short, um, this individual, you know, got to the point where what, what that job required and dealing with her every day required, I was taking it home. I was trying to be ready the next day. I was trying to find truth, you know, in this situation and deal with it rightly. Uh, I kept finding lie after lie. Uh, and uh, ultimately, circumstances happened that kind of, showed this individual's true colors. And it was a, like a, for lack of a better term, a big break in the case. It, it was something that was so compelling that allowed the case to move in a more proper direction. You know what my response to that was? What do you think? All right. You're getting what you deserve. Yeah, we'll see how it happens from here on out. You've caused me a whole lot of grief, okay? Uh, so on and so forth. That's the kind of attitude that I had. You know, and at the same time, I, 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 rem- I offered up a prayer to God. You know, thank you, God, for doing, for doing this. There's going to be an end to this, and I can get on with some other things. Well, I'll tell you how God got my attention on that. Other circumstances developed. Long story short, I didn't get rid of this incident for three and a half years. For three and a half years, it drug on. And I began looking at that, and I was directed to God's word regarding this situation but more specifically my attitude toward this situation well this is the, this is the thing proverbs 24:17 and 18 says this do not rejoice when your enemy falls do not rejoice and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles lest the lord see it it displease him and he turn away his wrath from him well, that happened to a T. It happened to a T. And my first response wasn't, oh, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> thank you. You know, thank you for the discipline in my life. Then I had to get on over into Hebrews and read about what it means to be chastened by the Lord. <laughs> you know, Job knew this. Job understood this in his wisdom. God had shown him this. Job thirty-one twenty-nine. he's going through and looking at his life. You know, he's always wanting to know, have I sinned? Have I sinned? Is that why all this has come upon me? 31.29, he says, If I have rejoiced at the destruction of him who hated me or lifted up myself when evil found me, Job knew what it was about. You see what I'm talking about here? The intricacies of our life, the areas in which sin resides. What, what's the danger with an attitude like that? You know, we're dependent upon God. God, vengeance is His. God does the judging. God does the correction. It's not us, and it's not us who deserve it. It's God Almighty. So I can look back and say, thank you, God. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son that believes. He says that if you, if you are without those kinds of experiences. Why? This ought to get our attention. He says, then we are illegitimate. We don't belong to Him. I can't bear that. I can't bear that. Thank you, God, that Your Word is real and You open it up to us. We're talking about the dangers of sin. Sin is deceitful. Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. 
And here the Hebrews were trying to, to hang on to the Levitical system. That's the context of that verse there. And it led to a, an ultimate rejection or watering down of the cross of Christ. The deceitfulness of sin. Sin is a deceiver. It's a deceiver. And it cautions us to look intently at the circumstances of our life. <coughs> James one twenty two tells us, but be doers of the Word and, and not hearers only. We hear that and quote that, but we leave off the last part a lot of times when you hear that verse quoted. It says, deceiving our own selves. Doing follows believing. A true commitment to Christ in any area will result in us moving physically, doing in that direction, not simply acquiescing to the truth of the Word. We take it in and we live by it. Galatians 6-7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. And you can look at many other... But the word deception, I talked about taking the word mind and looking at a word study. Do the same thing with deception or deceived or deceitful. Run through it. It's amazing. And there we know. We looked last week at that verse that tells us that we're not ignorant of, of Satan's devices. Well, this is, These are the kind of things that help us. We focus upon the issue of deceit. Lord, am I being deceived in these circumstances? Show me in Your Word. He'll do that. But we can't get by with sinning against Him. There's a payday. God cannot be mocked. Just a few more minutes. Lastly, sin is also damning. Mark 9, 42. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble says it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. We looked briefly at Mark 9, verses 43-48. That's where he's talking about cutting off your hand, cutting off your foot, plucking out your eye. But here he adds, you know, those verses that follow. Actually, I think it only says it once, and depending on what translation you have, it might be there three times where it says where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. You know, that's from Isaiah 66, 24. That's really only there once. But Christ uses that to remind us that sin is damning. And the reason we take drastic measures, the reason we call it what it is is not so we go around in a tizzy all the time. We're all fire. That's that's not the result, and that is not what's required. We can get to a point of a confident rest in the Word of God because we believe His Word. We know the power is there to be an overcomer that Christ provides. And by the way, as believers, we do have forgiveness. We do have that. God wants us moving forward as as good soldiers with what He's provided and not simply resting in the fact that, well, there's forgiveness. God will forgive me. No, my Savior died for me. He paid my sin debt in the sins of for everyone who would believe. He did that. It's my joy. It's not just a command. It's not just a duty. It's my joy to live for Him and to be a light for Him and to be used of him. So, drastic measures are required, and it always deals with the heart. Let me finish this. Mark 7, 21 through 23. For from within, that is, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within. And defile a man, defile a woman. Drastic measures are required. Jeremiah defines it this way when he says that the heart, in in chapter 17, verses 9 and 10, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his works, according to the fruit of his doings. God knows our heart. How important is it to know and just to be mindful of the fact when we're sitting and we're contemplating something that it's not a secret from God. You say, we know that. No. Are you mindful of it? Are you aware of His presence? 
He knows what you're doing. He knows your thoughts. He knows the intent of your heart. And we have to go to Him and say, God, change if necessary. Change my motivation. Change my belief. So in the interest of ending on an extremely positive note, (laughs) I'll remind you that God has provided His grace. We've alluded to Romans chapter 8, verse 13 for our focal passage, but you can find four things, four things out of Romans 8 there. General topics that remind us about what God has done. Of course, in verse 1, you find that there is now no condemnation for us. Be encouraged. Through the work of Christ, there is no condemnation. It's been removed. And then in verse 9, you find that the Holy Spirit does indeed indwell us. We are powered. We have Him with us. Verse 11, it alludes to man's fallenness and the fact that it will be wiped away. Again, another reference to our glorification in salvation. I mean, think about it. In heaven, no sin, no propensity to sin, no desire to sin. Beyond having victory in sin, it doesn't exist. How wonderful. This is a promise from God. And then obviously in in, uh, verse 14 of chapter 8, it talks about the fact that God has made us His sons. We have an identity. He is our Father. We have a relationship with Him. And I hope this gives us the picture of Him with His arms of provision and protection around us in this life. We are to put sin to death in our life. Put it to death. We're to give no opportunity to sin in our life. We looked at Romans 13, 14. Make no provision for the flesh and to fulfill its lusts. And then lastly, dead last, an encouragement for us to reject the first solicitations of sin in our life. That's good advice from here on out for the rest of this day and for the rest of the week until we meet again. James 4, 7, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Hallelujah. That's his word. So we can end with that. We're out of time. We'll move on next Sunday. Uh, And then I'll see you again when I see you again after that. But be thankful for God's word. Look at some of these things on your own that I've mentioned to you to be further encouraged. But thanks for being here. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, just simply help us to hear it and obey it. To be thankful for what you've provided for us. Lord, it's necessary for us to visit sin. We don't like it. But Lord, we're always mindful of what you've done and the completeness of your salvation, the thoroughness of it. That it is a specific and accomplished salvation for those who believe it's not a mere possibility but it's a reality purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you for that. May we live that way this week before a lost and dying world. I thank you in Christ's name. Amen.